0: Good morning. morning. I'm uh, delighted that Patrick Have is wearing um, his t-shirt. Can you stand up, Patrick? That's my phone. Can everyone see his t-shirt? He usually wears it while I'm leading worship, just to try and distract me. Which is the worst thing in the world if he raises his hands like this and he's in the presence. And he's got that giant baby. It looks ridiculous. Anyway, um, we're going to get started. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is James, as Mike. Um, kindly introduce me uh, i 'm part of the staff team here at south sun and i 'm married to Jane who sat on the floor with um, our gorgeous little boy, Leo, who is about nine months old. He keeps us very, very busy and awake <laughs> um, we 've been doing a series on the book of James over the past number of weeks, uh, looking at uh, marks of maturity, and I believe we're now on part seven, if you can believe it, of the series. So, why, why don't you turn with me to James, uh, the book of James, chapter three, uh, where we're going to be looking at uh, verses thirteen to eighteen. The word should miraculously there you go appear behind me, um, or you can use your phone, or your tablet, or you know you could go old school and use you know a Bible uh, if you wish. So, James three, 3 thirteen says this. And every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So from what we've seen of this series so far, and from what we've read of James so far, we can see that there seems to have been a bunch of inconsistencies in the church in those days, inconsistencies between what the church was preaching and what the church was actually practicing, between what they were saying and what they were actually doing. And James highlights the fact that these inconsistencies are in fact um, marks not of maturity, but of immaturity. He's saying that these inconsistencies inconsistencies are sorts of things that reveal the truth that we have not yet fully grown up and as not yet having fully applied the gospel of Jesus to its fullest extent. It's inconsistent with who it is we have truly been called to be. And we have seen this throughout this series. Whether it's how we, we pray, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, when we ask, we must believe and not doubt in the knowledge that God gives generously to all without finding fault, it says. Or in our approach to the scriptures in chapter one verse 22 to 25, which we read and then we forget immediately after reading it. James describes it as like someone who's looked in a mirror and when they look, um, look away, they've forgotten what they look like. Maybe it's an immaturity in our attitudes towards other people. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the, by the law as lawbreakers. So we must pay attention to who it is we are seeking out and sidling up to. Or... It is an immaturity that we, are showing, um, that we are showing with the inconsistency of our practice, believing one thing and doing another. James tackles this in, in chapter 2, um, the idea of faith without works is dead. And then last week, Mike um, looked at another challenge, watch your tongue. Stop saying one thing in one place and something else somewhere else. And so this week, you guessed it, we are looking at the same thing. James is trying to drive home these important matters of inconsistency and is challenging us and calling us to maturity. So from what we can tell from the text in James' day, Christians weren't relating to God, weren't relating to people outside the church, and as we can see from last week, weren't relating to one another quite as they were meant to. All kinds of unpleasantness had found their way into the church, which was upsetting the peace and affecting the community. If you just look over the the verses that we've just read, we see that James describes bitter envy and selfish ambition in verse 14 and, and disorder and every evil practice in verse 16. And so it is clear that the context that this is written suggests that the churches that James was writing to were not getting on quite as they should. And it is hard, isn't it, to, to really love one another. I mean, we talk about how wonderful heaven is going to be, but isn't the reality quite different? I came across this, this short Irish rhyme which says this, to dwell above with saints we love, ah, yes, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Or if you prefer, this quote, which seems to have been attributed to so many different people over the years, the more, the more time I spend with people, the more I like my dog. <laughs> and it's true, the prospect of spending eternity with fellow believers sounds perfectly nice, but if you've spent any time at a Christian conference, particularly if it involves any form of camping, you might realize that the theory of it is quite different to the practice. And what James is getting at here is that no matter how well the gospel was being articulated by Christian preachers, the gospel itself was undermined by Christian practice. And we all know that any church will have its faults, and this church is no different. The problem is that churches are full of people, and people do people's stuff. And we also get that perfection in churches is an unrealistic ambition, certainly until the kingdom comes again in its fullness. But I do think that we expect the church to be different to the world. Jesus said to John, uh, Jesus said in John, sorry, in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my my disciples if you love one another. So, what is the answer? What does James say is the answer? Well, if last week... um, it was watch your tongue. This week, it's, it's watch your heart. Watch your attitude. And what James is saying is that it's ultimately evil, worldly, or even demonic attitudes that are at the roots of all this discord. And he's saying that these attitudes cannot be allowed to continue because they're causing such great disruption and wreaking havoc. And so how does James address these issues? How does he choose to speak to the church, as always with James, his style is a bit proverbial and we have to work a little bit in order to understand his meaning. Jesus did the same thing, by the way. So the way James chooses to do this is to compare compare and contrast two kinds of heart attitudes. So let's look at this. This is reading from uh, verses 13. It says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, what James is not doing here is looking at it from the perspective of wisdom versus folly. He's, you might see that in somewhere like Proverbs, for example, but... He's not simply telling the people off for behaving or misbehaving in a particular way. What James is saying is that there are, in fact, two kinds of wisdom. And you know, the, the way you know that I personally am not making this up is, hopefully, if you've got your Bibles, you can see that this section of chapter 3 is very helpfully entitled, Two Kinds of Wisdom, which is how I work this all out. And importantly, James wants us to be aware that this is the case and be able to distinguish between the two. So firstly, in verses 15 and 17, we see that there is wisdom that comes from heaven. He says it twice, which means it must be important. And secondly, there is the kind of wisdom or attitude which he describes as earthly, unspiritual, demonic, and of the devil, as he describes in verse 15. Last week, Mike taught us that the tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body, and it is is itself set on fire by hell. And just to keep up that level of intensity, this week we have wisdom and attitudes that are earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. And as I say, James is not simply trying to tell people to stop behaving one way and behave another He wants us to be able to distinguish, to discern between the two types of wisdom that we might be receiving. Some of these things that might be earthly or of the devil might appear wonderful. It may even come across as godly. But the truth is that these things are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but are at best inspired by man, and at the worst they are inspired by the enemy. So how on earth are we meant to distinguish between these two types of wisdom? Especially when we are faced with a wisdom that appears godly, um, but is in fact unspiritual. How can we tell them apart and hope to avoid all this disorder from taking a foothold in the church? Well, most importantly, it's not a question of what, but why. The difference is less about what it is we are doing, and more about why we are doing something. It's not about the content, but it's about the heart behind it. Verse 13 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So what we do needs to be done in humility that comes from wisdom. Now, there is a link between the way we live and wisdom. But it's really interesting here that most of what James is talking about is not about how much we do. It's not about whether we raise money for charity or seem concerned with the plight of individuals or, or serve on ten different rotors at church. All of these things can be done with good motives. All of these things can be done out of a deep connection with Jesus. But these things can also have negative motives. You can give to charity to gain praise from man. You can serve on 10 different rotors at church because you find your identity in serving. What James is wanting us to think about is this. What is the heart behind it all? What is really going on and with our own hearts? And he talks about this both from a negative perspective in chapters 3, verse 14 to 16, and then positively in chapter 3, verse 17 to 18. Let's look at these in turn. I'm just going to have a drink. I'm so hot. So verse 14 to 16 says this. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So there are two negative postures of the heart, which we should be looking out for, in ourselves, bitter envy and selfish ambition. Let's, let's take a look at each of these. Firstly, bitter envy. James is talking about that intense jealousy, which is, in fact, a result of being threatened by someone else's strength, someone else's giftedness or abilities. And often, subconsciously, we're, we're not just envious of what the other has, but of who they are in and of themselves. We might see someone else's ability to give care to others emotionally or a confidence and a certainty of who they are or whatever way it is that God has gifted someone. And seeing these things stirs up in us a sense of why have they got this and not me? How come he gets to do that? And that in turn stirs in us feelings of inadequacy or we begin to feel insecure. And because we don't see ourselves as matching up to them, rather than celebrate our brother and sister, we seek to destroy them. And we probably do that in lots of different ways. We might take a direct approach, but as Christians and as as Brits, I think, um, we're probably more inclined to a passive-aggressive style, where we undermine such that the person has no idea that we are trying to take them down piece by piece. It was Goethe who once said this, when you are faced by overwhelming merit in someone else, the only way you can save your own ego is by love, by loving that which you admire and that which surpasses you. And the second attitude that James looks at is selfish ambition. And the Greek here conveys the idea of sort of campaigning for political office. So people with this kind of posture of the heart are not really interested in the growth of the kingdom of God, but in establishing their own power base, setting up their own little group, which makes them feel secure and important. But it's often a form of pride, which isn't about serving the church or its leaders, it's about control, doing things their own way, doing things the correct and right way. And where you see these forms of wisdom, James says in verse 16, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And I think it's something we see all over our society. You probably see it in your workplaces. And as the Greek translation of the phrase alluded to, you certainly see it in our politics of late. Just look at the events after the Brexit vote and the attitudes of individuals desperate to occupy number 10 stabbing friends and colleagues in the back in order to get what they wanted. They had only one thing on their minds. And so what is the alternative? Where is the hope? Well, you may have guessed it, but James says that the answer is heavenly wisdom. Have a look at verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. These are the kind of postures of the heart that James wants to see. Pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Let's quickly look at each of these pure, not being mixed up with any kind of false motive, but a simple, singular love for the Lord. Peace-loving, not, not spoiling for a fight, not needing to be aggressive about things. On the contrary, James is saying our attitudes should be considerate. And the Greek here conveys the idea of being willing to meet people halfway, not getting entrenched in a position from which we refuse to budge. Being more concerned to be fair than to be proven right. Submissive, and again, the Greeks suggest suggest being open, humbly obedient. Wisdom from heaven is open, never rigid, never inflexible. It's full of mercy and good fruit. Heavenly wisdom is always concerned to lift people up, never to disdain them, never to dismiss them, never to put them down. It's full of mercy. It's impartial and sincere, Again and again and again, this idea of being consistent comes up. And here it is again. Heavenly wisdom, heavenly attitudes. Don't say one thing to one person and something to someone else. It doesn't take sides. Literally, it's not hypocritical. There's no acting or sham. It's honest, it's straightforward, it's authentic, it's integrous. This is the kind of open-hearted candor, gentleness and consideration which is characteristic of the truly wise person. These are the things that we want to value. These are the things we want in our lives. These are the sort of people we want to be. This is what we want church to be like. And so James is saying, if you've got people like this in your church, you will get peace in your church. Verse 18 says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And one of the things that I love about this church, about you people, is that this is what I see. Everywhere I look, I experience this. Just, just this week, I experienced some of this. We had our, our last house group of the term and we wanted to have a, a party for everyone in our group so we hosted a a pizza party, um, but our son Leo had slightly other um, ideas. Um, we uh, he was what we like to call a, a little bit of a pickle. Um, the party started at 7:45, um, due to sort of end about 10, and I think we got him down to sleep at about 9:45 p.m. So we had a ni- we had a nightmare, me and Jane, of an evening. We felt awful for our group that we couldn't be around couldn't host couldn't cook the pizzas um, and we just we knew um, that we would be coming down to a real mess in our in our house but someone in our group had, had other ideas they, they hosted they they made sure everyone got fed and they cleared and they tidied up our house and it may sound small but it was a grand gesture to, to me and Jane it was It was considerate, it was submissive, it was full of mercy and good fruit, and it brought peace to our house. And this church is full of people like this. Now, this doesn't mean we get complacent. That doesn't mean to say we have arrived. I, for one, certainly have not. But I do think that God wants to encourage us a bit this morning. I think he wants to put courage in us but this is something that we have to continually be checking in in ourselves. Have I got a good heart? What are my motives deep down? And for me, this comes back to the person of Jesus, the wonderful person of Jesus, fixing our eyes and our hearts solely on him, receiving the living waters from Jesus so that our hearts never Ever thirst for the things that are apart from Him. One, you stand. And can we have the band back?